this message was presented at the GYC 2011 conference. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. Father, I just want to thank you so much for this day. And Lord, I pray as that we continue to study today, you would dwell amongst us. Father, that you would break our hearts, that you would send your Holy Spirit to fill this place. That as we study your word, that um, the message that you have for each and every one of us may be something that we take away, that we can apply in our own lives, that will draw us closer to you. Father, I pray that you anoint my lips, that what I share may be from you and that your voice may speak to each and every one here. So we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, I just wanted to introduce myself again shortly. My name is Bernice. I am um, here with my brother. For those, is there anyone that's just come into this session, or are we all from the morning? We all have the same people? Very good. Okay, so we are from a church called Gateway. Um, in Melbourne, Australia, and today we're looking at how the Holy Spirit helps us to prepare ministry for small groups in our home churches. So the first half of this module was looking at corporate revival, the things that we need to do as a church to be the same group of people, but different individuals with a renewed mission, with a renewed focus, with a different attitude. So today, what we're going to do now is to look at what that actually means for each and every one of us in our personal spiritual walks. Okay, so it's the same workbook. We're just about halfway through now, and I just want to pick up where we left off, Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, and we're only going to read through it very quickly because I know we've covered it already. Um, Acts chapter 2, verse 42, and the Bible says, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, and in breaking of bread, and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common, and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily as such should be shaped, saved. Wouldn't that be amazing if daily we had people being added to our church? Amen. Daily. Can you imagine that? When we talk about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, usually the first thing that comes to mind is the Pentecost. So people think of the upper room experience and, and the disciples there. But I want to take us back a few, a few hundred years, actually, to the book of Joel. And we studied this last night a little bit in the prayer after the evening devotions or the opening session, Joel chapter 2. And I want us to turn there quickly. And we find that in Joel, the promise of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, like in the Pentecost, like in the upper room, was actually first prophesied by Joel. And so we don't have time to go through the, the whole story of Joel, but basically this prophecy, the first two chapters of Joel, explain this prophecy. It's a time in Israel when the people are rebellious. The people have gone away from God. Um, and what happens is that in the, in the first book of Joel, uh, it describes all the pestilences that God is saying will come upon them because of a result of their sin. Now, if you have the time, I'd invite you to, to read through that uh, at a later stage, but I want to turn our attention to chapter 2. And chapter 2 is when God shows um, his mercy and his grace. 
And in a picture of a despondent and a desolate and a diseased Israel, both spiritually, physically, mentally, God delivers this really unique promise. I want to turn um, later on, we'll, we'll be studying that, but I want to have a look at, at the context in which Joel, uh, I guess, describes the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Why is it, do you think, that Joel and God has, Joel as a messenger of God rather, why is it that God chooses this time in Israel's history when they are not in its glory days, when they are not you know, the best ambassadors as, as God's chosen people? Why is it that he chooses this time to deliver the promise that he will pour out his Holy Spirit in every individual's life? It doesn't seem to fit God's plan. It doesn't seem like it makes sense. Um, so what I want to do is to have a look at, at the chapter of uh, Joel chapter 2 and we will pick up in verse 21. So Joel chapter 2 verse 21 and I've got it up on the screen as well um, and it says, Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice for the Lord will do great things. So God here is already showing a contrast to what we see in chapter 1 where there's pestilence, there's disease, there's this description of locusts and canker worms and all these weird and wonderful creatures that are going to eat up Israel's crops and and leave them desolate. Jump down to uh, verse 25 with me and it says, And I will restore to you the years that the locust hath eaten, the canker worm, the caterpillar and the palmer worm, my great army which I sent you. And ye shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. Praise the name of the Lord that hath dealt wondrously with you, and my people shall never be ashamed. The next slide. And ye shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and none else, and my people shall never be ashamed. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions. That is the promise of Pentecost. That is the promise of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Now, there are some um, key points that I want to extract from this. There are so many lessons that we can learn. But the first key point is listed in your workbook. And that is that if we look at the promise that God has given us in these three or four verses, there are two elements that stand out. The first is, as we go back to the, the first slide, the first is that I will restore you to the years that the locust has eaten. So in this description and in this story of Joel and the people of Israel at this time, in their revival and the Reformation, the first element is restoration. Okay, God is saying that in his grace and mercy, part of his plan for revival and reformation in every single person's life is restoration. The second element, and you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, that I am the Lord your God and none else, and my people shall never be ashamed. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit. The second element is what? The outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So, revival and reformation. Restoration and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Now, if we go back, I've highlighted a word there in red. You'll notice that it says, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. So, when we talk about just basic English grammar. When we say, I'll, I'll do something afterwards, usually there's something that you say you will do before that. So, I will go to seminars now and afterwards I will have lunch. Make sense? So, when we're looking at afterwards, 
that means that we should go back and look at, okay, where's the something that God said he will do before that? What is it that comes before the outpouring of the Holy Spirit? So if we track back through Joel 2, verse 25 to 28, we have afterwards. And we go backwards and we look for where God mentioned prior to that, I will. You'll see that the time that God mentioned I will was actually in verse 25. And I will restore you to the years that the locust has eaten, etc., etc. So we have to the two elements, restoration and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And the order is such. Restoration comes first. God restores us to be equal with, uh, to be just in front of him. He takes away our sins through his salvation. That is the restoration. And we cannot have the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in each of our lives until we have experienced that restoration firsthand. Alright, let's jump back to Acts 2. So we're going back to the story of the Pentecost. Acts chapter 2. And we have the story, and we'll pick up here in verse 16. And it says, But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, verse 17, And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith the Lord, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Does that sound familiar? It's exactly the same prophecy, isn't it? So Acts chapter 2 says that the first time Joel's prophecy was fulfilled was when? Pentecost, exactly. And it's going to be fulfilled again, verse 17, the first words are, in the last days. Okay, so this is what we're looking at. We are looking for, when we're asking and praying and pleading to God, pour out your Holy Spirit upon me. We are looking for this own revival and reformation in our lives. We are looking for the restoration first and then we can expect the outpouring of the Spirit. So, what we've been reading so far is a couple of verses where we, met, we see it mentioned, I will pour out my Spirit. I will pour out my Spirit upon all sons, your daughters, your um, young men shall dream dreams, etc. What does it actually mean to pour out? When God says he will pour out his spirit, what does that mean? Now, I'm no expert on Hebrew or Greek. I, um, I only study teeth, so you guys will have to help me out with the pronunciation and such. But this is actually the Greek word, if I'm not wrong, um, for poured out that is used in both Joel and Acts. Are there any Hebrew or Greek students here? Yes. Um, so you guys might be familiar with this word. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong with pronunciation, but I think it's pronounced... Ekeo, is that right? Ekeo, my apologies. Ekeo. So, this word ekeo actually means to pour forth, figuratively to bestow, run greedily out, shed abroad, forth, spill, gush, pour out. That that seems logical. That seems like a that seems like a straightforward explanation of what it means to be poured out. The first thing that stands out to me is that, first of all, the connotation that you get when someone says, I'm going to pour something out, is that it's not a trickle. It's not a little bit. It's not a sprinkle. This is um, not something that will only rain down on certain individuals. Okay, we're talking about something that's going to be spread throughout um, God's people as a whole. It's, not, it's no longer selected to the Levites or the priests. It's no longer restricted to Bible teachers or pastors. It's to every single one of us here. Okay, and so we had, our, we had our little equation before that revival and reformation is restoration and the outpouring of the Spirit. 
The outpouring suggests that something is different about the experience of the Holy Spirit within God's people before when the Spirit was not poured out as opposed to afterwards when the Spirit is poured out. Are you guys following me? So what are the differences between before and after? Now, if we have a look at that definition of ekeo again, um, I've highlighted one of the words here, and it says abroad. Now, when you think of abroad, do you think of spreading out or down, or how, how do you think abroad works? So if I say, I want to study abroad, it means that you go to another country, you go to a different area of the world. This is spreading out. So the experience that God's people have with the outpouring of the Spirit is something that will broaden their experience and the depth um, in which the Spirit is impacting their lives. The first way that God's people, previously Israel, experience the presence of the Holy Spirit now is that it increases in breadth. It's no longer restricted to certain individuals, as we said before. Let's turn to Numbers chapter 11, verse 22. And there's an interesting comparison that I want to highlight. Numbers 11, verse 22. Now, what was the experience of the Holy Spirit within God's people before this outpouring, before this Pentecost, as we mentioned, and how is it different afterwards? Numbers 11, verse 22. And Moses said unto him, Envious thou for my sake, would God that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his Spirit upon them. So does that suggest to you that um, the whole of the Israelite camp was filled with God's Spirit, or is it certain individuals? Certain individuals. Now, forgive me for my ignorance, but why, why is it that God would be so, I guess, play, playing favourites? Why would God play favourites? And why is it that only certain people get to um, have the Holy Spirit? Isn't it unfair some could argue that it is unfair that only the Levites and the priests were able to have the Holy Spirit. Why did God not want to outpour his Holy Spirit in, in this time and why does he want to do it for us? What makes us so special? I want to turn to Ezekiel chapter 39 and verse 29. And that might help us to understand a little bit about why it is that God is, I guess, in our eyes, delaying the outpouring of this Holy Spirit and he chose not to do it for the people of Israel during this time. So Ezekiel 39, verse 29. And it reads, Neither will I hide my face any more from them, for I have poured out my spirit upon the house of Israel, saith the Lord God. So we see a seeming contradiction, you know, in the Old Testament time of Israel. It seems that on one hand God says, you know, my prophets are the ones that I've poured my Holy Spirit out on. But on the other hand, we see that God always, God has a desire. We read in Ezekiel here, God has a desire to fill every single individual's life with the Holy Spirit. So what was the disconnect? Why didn't that happen in the Old Testament time? The pen of inspiration writes, because of the failure of the people and the consequent rejection of the Jewish nation, the promises were not fulfilled in a literal Israel. These promises were then transferred to a what? To a spiritual Israel. It is because the people of the literal Israel rejected God. They didn't experience that restoration in their life. 
that these promises for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit were not fulfilled. They could not be fulfilled. So if we are praying for the Holy Spirit to be poured out in our own lives, we need to be so careful that we do not reject the call of the Holy Spirit and the call of God to restore our lives like literal Israel did. All right, let's turn to Galatians 3, verse 28. This is a beautiful promise. Galatians 3, verse 28. And it says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. This just affirms for us that God is so willing and so desperately willing to pour out his Holy Spirit and to restore each of our lives. It's a promise that we can claim for ourselves today. So the second aspect um, of how the, the God's people experience the Holy Spirit differently after the outpouring is highlighted again in the definition of the word to pour out. And it says to run greedily, to gush, to pour out, And that, to me, suggests that uh, the Holy Spirit deepens in the intensity and the presence that it has in every individual's life. Does that make sense? So the first element is that we have an increased breadth of the Holy Spirit within God's people. Every individual has the opportunity and has the potential to be filled with the Holy Spirit. The second is that God pours his Holy Spirit out to increase the depth and the presence of which it has in our lives. Let's turn to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. Now there are so many aspects in, in those two verses, it's so jam-packed, but I just want to break it down so that we can really understand what it's trying to say here. So let's go slowly again. Verse 13, In whom ye also have trusted, after ye that have heard the word of truth. So what's the first element? We're talking about the process here of how we receive the Holy Spirit in our own lives. The first element is that we hear the word of truth and the gospel of your salvation. So remember, revival and reformation is what? What's the first element? Restoration. This is the restoration that God is talking about. In whom also, after that ye believed, ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit. So restoration, Holy Spirit. There's one third element here that really helps us to understand what's going on. The Holy Spirit of promise, verse 14, which is the earnest of our in until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. Now, before I was preparing this sermon, um, or this seminar rather, I never really realized that the outpouring of, I never fully, I guess, appreciated that the outpouring of our Holy Spirit, as it goes from restoration, outpouring to inheritance, is a sign of God's remnant people in the sense that it shows us that it is, we are possessed by God. It mentions in verse uh, 14, until the redemption of the purchased possession. Now, if we, are poor, if we are filled with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, what does it mean that now we are inherited and we are possessed by God? 
Now this is another Greek word, and it's pronounced peripoesis, I think. Um, and it means to be possessed. It, it's the word used for um, possession in this verse here, Ephesians 1 verse 14. And the definition for this word, sorry, going back, is um, the act or the acquisition by extension of preservation, obtaining peculiar purchased possession saving. Now this word peripoesis is actually used in four other verses in the Bible. And one of those verses is 1 Peter 2.9. Are you guys familiar with 1 Peter 2.9? Let's turn there quickly. I know we're short on time, but let's turn there briefly to help us understand what it actually means to be filled with the Holy Spirit in our individual lives. 1 Peter 2.9 But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a what? Peculiar people. So if we substitute this word, peculiar, with possessed, ye are a possessed people. Ye are a people filled with the Holy Spirit. Ye are a people that have experienced the restoration in your own lives. Does that make sense? All right. So to recap, so far we have restoration and then outpouring. The personal infilling of the Holy Spirit is part of revival and reformation. Outpouring signifies a greater breadth of the indwelling spirit in God's people. Outpouring also deepens our understanding of our relationship with God as a pledge of our inheritance to him. And under God's possession, we are a peculiar people. Everyone tracking with me so far? Very good. So what does it actually mean if we go from where we've left off here? Under God's possession, we are a peculiar people. So we read a little bit about what that means in 1 Peter 2.9. But I like to be practical. What does it mean for how I behave in my school environment, in my work environment, with my family, with my friends? I want to share with you a couple of quotes. Is that working? All right. Like ancient Israel, the church has dishonored her God, abusing her high and exalted privilege of being peculiar and holy in character. His spirit has been quenched in the church. By their fruits ye shall know them, not their profession, but the fruit they bear to the glory of God. They will be careful to depart from all iniquity and to perfect holiness in the fear of God. So I want you to note in the middle of this quote, it says that his spirit has been quenched in the church by their what? By their fruits ye shall know them. So peculiar people that is filled by the Holy Spirit has the fruit of the Spirit. Now let's go deeper into that. Now I'm sure all of you know this, um, this verse, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. In fact, many of the kids in our Sabbath school, um, this is one of the first memory verses that they learn. We teach them the song that goes, you know, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, etc., etc. But let's just refresh our memories, what God promises to us as a fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5:22 to 23. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against there is against such there is no law. 
Now, John 15:8 also says that, you know, herein is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. As the Father hath loved me, so I have loved you. Continue ye in my love. Why is it that in both Galatians and John, which are only two of the references to the fruit of the Spirit in the Bible, that love always comes first? What is it about love that is so important? I want to share with you this quote, and it says, And all who would bring forth fruit as workers together with Christ must first fall into the ground and die. The life must be cast into the furrow of the world's need. Self-love, self-interest must perish. But the law of sacrifice is the law of self self-sacrifice, rather, is the law of self-preservation. The seed buried in this ground produces fruit, and in turn this is planted. So why is it that love is always mentioned as the first fruit that we need to cultivate in our own lives? It's because self-love and self-sacrifice is always the first fruit that we naturally, in our carnal nature, produce. That we need to, it's the first obstacle that we need to overcome, the first that we need to learn to surrender. So here in Galatians, we're presented with a pretty impressive list. We have love, we have joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, etc., and they're all nice things to be. You know, it's nice to have a loving person. It's nice to have a joyful person, a peaceful person. But what does it actually mean for us when we're talking about small groups, when we're talking about ministry, what does it actually mean for us as a person, as a Christian? I want you to think about that. As we go on to our second element of being a peculiar spirit-filled people, what does it say? The Holy Spirit commits to every Christian some gift or talent which is to be used to advance the kingdom. The present is our day of trust. To every person is committed some peculiar gift or talent which is to be used to advance the Redeemer's kingdom. So we have fruits of the Spirit for a peculiar Spirit for people and we also have gifts of the Spirit. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians, if you will. 1 Corinthians 12. verse 7 to 12. And let's refresh our memories as to what spiritual gifts um, the Holy Spirit gives to us. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7 to 12. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit withal. For to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another the gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another diverse kinds of tongues, to another interpretation of tongues. But all these workers, one and the selfsame spirit, dividing to every man severalty as he will. For as the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. So again, we've got a list of spiritual gifts. God is promising us wisdom, knowledge, faith, healing, miracles, prophecy, discernment, you know, tongues, interpretation. That's a pretty impressive list and it's also quite a comprehensive list. And there are so many other references in the Bible as to the spiritual gifts that the Holy Spirit promises. But have you ever stopped to wonder how these gifts are actually distributed? If we're talking about ministry and we're talking about small groups, why is it that God has given us all... Um, certain gifts and not others. You know, as a kid, I used to think that um, as you got older, 
birthday presents, Christmas presents, whatever they are, they should get bigger as well. And so I thought that maybe, you know, if you start out as a young Christian, maybe God gives you a little gift. And, and then after that, as you grow older, maybe there'll be more gifts coming your way. But it doesn't really work that way, does it? God gives different gifts to different people. Why isn't it that God just gives everyone all the gifts? Why is it that God only pours out his spirit in the form of spiritual gifts diversely? Galatians 6.2 there are three elements that I think um, we want to investigate in this section. Galatians 6.2 is the first. And Galatians 6.2 says, we're all there, Bear ye also one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. God gives us spiritual gifts because when we're working in ministry, when we're going home to our home churches, when we want to start up small groups or we want to do whatever ministry it is that God has called you to do, we need to learn to bear one another's burdens. You know, Hebrews also says that we need to exhort one another daily. And God has given us diversity for this very reason, for us to learn to bear one another's burdens. Second Corinthians. Second Corinthians twelve, verse nine. Second Corinthians twelve verse nine says, And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Now what happens when you go back to your home church and um, you are the only one that wants to start up a small group ministry? And, you know, in a small group, as in any ministry, you need a diverse selection of gifts. Some people can preach better than others. Some people can teach better than others. And I can recall the first time that I had to teach um, the care group study, and we'll go into the different elements of care group in our later modules. But the first time I had to teach a care group study, I really struggled, and I said, God, you have not given me this gift of teaching. Surely there must be someone else. Why is it that God gives us only certain gifts when he knows that in our ministry we'll probably need some of the skills that we are not as gifted in as others? 2 Corinthians 12.9 says what? My grace is sufficient for thee. God gives us certain spiritual gifts so that we will learn to rely on him, so that in our weakness he will be glorified and we draw our strength from him. So, We've gone through the first four elements and we know that under God's possession we are a peculiar people and to be peculiar and to have the Holy Spirit in our lives means that we have the fruits and the gifts of the Spirit. So then, what does that mean in terms of our ministry back home in our church? We have love, we have joy, we have peace, we may have some of the spiritual gifts of the Spirit What happens then when you go back and you want to reach out to your friends, to your family, to the people in your youth group? Let's look at when this outpouring of the Holy Spirit actually took place and when it first increased in breadth and depth within God's people. And that's going back to Pentecost. So I know we covered this in the last section, but I just want to visit it again really quickly. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And it says, But ye shall receive power 
After that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Now how many places are mentioned in that verse? Four. What are the four places? There's Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then end of the earth. Why is it that God asks us to start in Jerusalem? Where is your Jerusalem? Your Jerusalem is your home, the people in your immediate circle. And then you spread to your neighbors, to your acquaintances, to your Samaria, your neighbors, your surrounding, is it your community, whether it be your school group, your um, community youth group, whatever it is. And then to the end of the earth. That model, starting at home, spreading to your friends, your family, then to your neighbors, to your community, and then to the end of the earth, is the principle behind small group ministry. And that's what we'll be studying more later today. God could have reached his object in saving sinners without our aid, but in order for us to develop a character like Christ, we must share in his work. In order to enter into his joy, the joy of seeing souls redeemed by his sacrifice, we must participate in his labors for their redemption. Now, in Genesis 1 verse 28, you know, the verse is usually used in different contexts, but God says, be fruitful and multiply. The reason why God wants to pour out his Holy Spirit and to give us fruits and to give us gifts is not so that we become more loving people and that's the end. Where does this, where does this peculiarity, where does this infilling of the Holy Spirit actually lead to? We read in, first, um, in Acts, the first chapter, It leads to Jerusalem, it leads to Judea, it leads to Samaria, it leads to the end of the earth. That is why we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, when we say that revival and reformation go together to give us restoration and then the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, we've covered the last half. We've covered the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and what that means. It means that we have the fruits and the gifts. What does it actually mean to be restored? And how does that fit in with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit? Now, I know that all of you are very familiar with the gospel message, but I just want to take you on a little bit of a journey and bear with me. And we're going to start in John 3.16. Now, you um, may not have to turn to that because we're going to go quite quickly. But John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave us his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him may have eternal life. So who gets eternal life? Is it whoever gives Bible studies or whoever behaves, whoever attends church? It's rather whoever believes in God. And, and so here we see that God is giving us free salvation. That's where the free restoration comes in. But then what about repentance? Don't we need to be good? Don't we need to behave in order to get to heaven? Romans 2.4 if we could turn to that, actually. Romans 2.4. Romans 2.4 says, O despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. What leads us to repentance? The goodness of God. So repentance is separate from the grace and the the mercy of God, obviously, that gives us the salvation. 
Come with me to Psalms 51, and I promise this will make a lot more sense when we put it all together in a minute. But Psalms 51, verse 10. This is again a familiar verse to all of us. But Psalms 51, verse 10 onwards, and we pick it up at, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways and sinners shall be converted unto thee. So the first two verses, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Usually people stop there and they say, you know, God, when you restore me, please give me a new heart and cleanse me from what I used to be, the person that I used to be before that. But I want to take note of what it says in verse 12 and 13. It says, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, that's the restoration that we're talking about here, and uphold me with thy free spirit, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And then what does it say? It says, Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Part of receiving this restoration, part of receiving this new heart, and having the Holy Spirit being poured out on you, is receiving a new will to teach transgressors to be a soul winner. And that's what we were talking about in the first half of this module, that when you are filled with the Holy Spirit in it, on a personal level, it means that you will be a different person when you go back. So what we have here is a little, I guess, a diagram to help us put all these different elements together. So we start off um, with David's new heart, the new heart that God has promised, to be a soul winner. And we can be a soul winner because we have been given a new heart and we have been converted. And we receive that new heart and we are converted because we repent from our sins. And repentance is because of God's goodness. We do it in gratitude to the free salvation of Christ. And the amazing thing is that this works in a cycle of evangelism. Because once you receive the free salvation of Christ, going back this way, you respond in gratitude and you repent, you receive a new heart and conversion, you become a soul winner and you teach someone else the exact same thing. And that is how small group ministry works. Now between the last two stages where we had the new heart and conversion and the soul winner, if we break it down to what we've been studying this morning, we have a We have a greater depth and breadth of the experience that we have of the Holy Spirit. We become a peculiar people which have the fruits fruits of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit and that helps us to be a soul winner. Does that help you guys to see how it all fits in together? Do I need to go over anything or go slower or anything like that? So that is a cycle of evangelism and that is the call that God gives to us. When he says that I want to pour out my Holy Spirit, for what purpose? Yes, it's to make us a better person. Yes, it's to make us more loving. Yes, it's to make us more joyful and peaceful. But it's also so that we become soul winners for him. Now, as my brother was sharing earlier, um, we both grew up in a a very strong Adventist family. And um, I grew up in Melbourne in a church called the Melbourne Seventh-day Adventist Church, uh, the Asian church, rather. And when I was about six or so, my parents, along with a few other 
adult counsellors within the youth group decided that they would like to, after prayerful consideration, they would like to plant a church within the city of Melbourne. And so we moved out from our home church or our mother church, so to speak, to the city church plant when I was around seven years old. And it was only a small group of us, there were about 30 to 40 people, and I was the only one that was seven years old and the next person was probably my brother and after that it was about 22 years old or or thereabouts. And so for a long time, growing up within this church plant, um, I struggled to reconcile two things. The first is that I was somewhat um, resentful, I guess, that my parents had taken me away from a peer group for most of my Christian experience. I never had pathfinders. I never had, um, what comes before Pathfinders? Adventurers Club? Do you guys have Adventurers Club? Okay, I never had Adventurers Club. And um, my mom used to try to buy stickers for me for Sabbath school too, but um, my Sabbath school was just two people, my mom and myself. And for a long time, I would still attend church and I was active in church and in ministry and I did little things here and there as a child, but for a long time I was very resentful that I never had a peer group within my church. That was the first thing. The second thing was that I struggled to reconcile how to be a Christian um, within a secular context. By that I mean when I go to school, um, when I have you know friends from swimming or whatever extracurricular activities I did. What did it mean for me? Because I didn't have a peer group in the church. Um, what does it mean to actually exist as a Christian with other people that may not believe the same thing? So for, for many years and also growing up, um, I eventually got closer and closer to the average age within our church, obviously, as I grew older. But I never really had the fruits of the Spirit. I didn't have love and joy and peace and long-suffering. And I started to focus, as perhaps some of you can relate, on the smaller things that you, that you may not notice at first within the church. And so for, because I was... Um, I didn't have the love and the joy and the long-sufferingness that God longs to give us. I started to notice, for example, all the inconsistencies. You know, so this person says they want to do that, but actually they do this, such and such. Or how come this person says this and they go around telling everyone this, but they don't do it themselves. And all these things. And as, as a young person growing up in the church, that can be quite discouraging. I also noticed that a lot of my friends and acquaintances that were my age in some of, my, um, some of the neighbouring churches started to leave the church. And that was very discouraging as well. Um, so for many years, I, I continued my ministry in the church. I was active. There were a lot of expectations, as, as some of you may be able to relate. And there was this kind of pseudo-balance that I managed to reach, and I was happy to exist that way. Somehow there was a disconnect between me knowing and believing in God. I never questioned that existence. And being happy and being filled with the Holy Spirit and actually having the fruits and the gifts that we're talking about. And then come, uh, come about 2008 when I was actually probably in my last year of high school. And uh, I finally had a peer group, you know, because we are a university-based church. So in the first year of university, they, you always have a new batch of students coming in every year. And so I finally had a peer group because I was in the first year of university and everyone else was in the first year of university and it was very exciting. Um, So I was really, really thrilled by that. 
But I was still placed in this awkward position because I knew that they expected me to know everything and how everything works because I'd been at the church for so long. Um, But yet I was still trying to reconcile how that actually works and how I actually exist as a Christian between all these different aspects of my life and how they all gel together. And I soon realised that just as easily this peer group, um, I'm not sure if any of you have travelled away from home to study, but usually when... uh, when you travel away for the first time from home, there's this, uh, there's this great sense of excitement that you're finally free and you can you know, try new things for yourself. And, and I just realized that my peer group that I had um, could just as easily leave because this was the first time away from home. They had no more obligation. They had no more mom to take them to church and, on Sabbath morning. Um, and soon they could just stop coming altogether. And so perhaps a little bit selfishly, I started praying really hard and I started to pray that God would touch each of these lives, each of these uh, friends that I had. I probably had about five or six my age. Um, each of these friends and that um, they would experience a conversion. They would experience the, you know, the Holy Spirit and that they would have a new experience with God and that they would become strong Christians just so that they would stay and I would have a peer group. But I never realized how much of that was actually due to my heart condition and how much that infilling of the Holy Spirit and that conversion actually needed to take place in my heart, that I needed to be filled with the Holy Spirit, that I needed to experience those love and the joy, the peace, the fruits of the Spirit. That was the first time that I really experienced what it means to love people and to have a burden for souls. And that was the first fruit that God chose to teach me and chose to cultivate in me. And... um, that was the first time that I really realized what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit in that way. So sometimes if we go back to this cycle, we get stuck at the new heart and conversion. You know, we know that God saves us. We know the gospel back to front. You can recite it in your sleep probably. But what happens when we need to go further? How do we actually become a soul winner? The soul that has been saved experiences greater depth and breadth of God's spirit in their lives. They become a peculiar people. We know all that. But the fruits and the gifts that God has given us is for a specific purpose. Now, as we come to a close, and we want to spend some time um, answering any questions and then in prayer as well. But I want to ask you to reflect. Where are you at in this cycle of evangelism? If you are seeking the Holy Spirit, what aspects of your life do you need to surrender to God? What fruits of the Spirit do you want God to cultivate in your lives? What fruits of the Spirit are you lacking? What gifts has God given you? And how can you use them with your church group, but going back as a changed person to become a soul winner? This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC. A supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.